The universe that we see today is filled with stars, galaxies, and other points of light. We can only see them because the universe itself is transparent to visible light. Stars get created, they shine, and their light streams through the universe directly to our eyes, enabling us to find out what is actually out there in the universe beyond our own solar system, galaxy, and local group of galaxies. But the universe wasn't always this way. The universe in the very distant past, if we go all the way back to the beginning towards the Big Bang, we can reach a time where it didn't have stars, where it didn't have galaxies, and maybe even more importantly, was full of neutral light blocking gas. When we started to form stars and galaxies, the universe remained electrically neutral for some time. And that transition from when light couldn't freely pass through it to when it can is called reionization or the end of the dark ages. So how did the dark ages end and how did we become able to see the universe? Find out on this edition of the Starts With a Bang podcast. When we look back in time, we are searching for the most distant galaxies, the first ones to form, the very first pristine stars in the universe, the ones made exclusively out of hydrogen and helium, the material that was formed in the Big Bang. But how do we find them? What do we see when we look to the very limits of what our instruments can currently resolve? Here to help us answer that is astronomer and PhD candidate Rebecca Larson, an NSF fellow at the University of Texas at Austin, and a wonderful astronomer in her own right. Rebecca, it's my pleasure to have you on the show and welcome. Thanks, Ethan. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, I am so excited to get to talk to you about this topic. So if I were to ask you, you know, okay, I've got this picture in my head where I have the universe, it starts with a big bang, it expands, it cools, I form my first atomic nuclei, it cools further, I form my first atoms, and now I look at the universe today and I see stars and galaxies everywhere as far back as our instruments can see. What you're studying is sort of that in-between realm, in between when the universe became electrically neutral, where we see the light from the cosmic microwave background, and when we see the late time universe, when we see the stars and galaxies that the light freely streams to our eyes, those are two very different epochs in the universe, right? That first one ends about 380,000 years after the Big Bang. And that second one where the universe is reionized, where we can see all the light, that doesn't really happen until 550 million years after the Big Bang. That gap in there, that's one of the big mysteries we have today. How do you even start thinking about what's going on during that time? How do you conceive of that time? 
Yeah, so that's a really great question because, you know, we want to understand, like you said, ultimately, how did we get to the point where we are now? How do we get to a galaxy full of stars and planets and surrounded by other galaxies and, and fully formed and developed situations when we started with something that was so very different? And so part of the things that I was interested in understanding was kind of how do the galaxies evolve into the ones that we live in today? You know, it's an ultimately human question to understand where did we come from? And if you take a step back and look at that in a, in a big picture type thing, we can try to, try to see even where our own galaxy came from. And like you said, there was a time in, in the history of the universe where, where all of the stuff in between galaxies was neutral hydrogen that blocked this light that we typically use to study galaxies. And then at one point, we see that it is no longer neutral hydrogen, it is ionized, meaning the light can travel freely through it, like you said. So what happened? What was that process? Why did it happen? What was the thing that I, that spit up enough radiation to ionize the universe around it? And, and how long did that process take? And there's so many things that we don't know about the early universe because it's really hard to study. And so trying to answer some of those questions is, is the goal of, of my PhD and, and ultimately what I want to focus on in my career. Right. So so let's start by taking a look at what we do know, right? Because I, I've sort of painted this picture of like, here's where this big gap is. And you're like, yeah, dude, that's where the big gap is. But <laughs> it's not like we're just totally stabbing around in the dark, right? We can look out, for example, at galaxies and how they evolve. And we can see that the galaxies we have today are very different from the early galaxies, the ones that existed when the universe was only a tiny fraction of its current age. Back then, the galaxies we see are very different from the ones we have now. By and large, the ones we have now are either spirals or ellipticals. They have hundreds of billions or more of stars in them. There are lots of very large galaxies. They form stars at a certain rate and they have stars that are many different ages. Some of them are very young, but many of them are billions and billions of years old. When we look at the very young universe, when we look at the early galaxies, by and large, they are much bluer, which means they have many more percentage-wise young stars than old stars. They have uh, disproportionately high levels of star formation. In fact, I think that the star formation rate, something like 10 or 11 billion years ago, was 20 to 30 times the star formation rate in the universe today. The galaxies that we see are mostly irregular shaped. Some of them are spirals, very few of them are ellipticals, and they appear to be less evolved. They are smaller, they haven't yet merged together to form these behemoths by and large. Um, and so we see these galaxies changing over time. And another change we see, of course, is that the galaxies today are much richer in heavy elements. You know, you talked about rocky planets and life and all this stuff we find very interesting about the Milky Way today. These very first galaxies that we're finding, the earliest ones we can see so far, they have extremely small amounts of those. What do we learn by comparing the young galaxies we see back then with the present day galaxies we see today? Yeah, you bring up a lot of really, really important points. So early on, you know, you know, telescopes are time machines. So when we look at things that are very, very far away, we're looking at how they were in the distant past. 
So some of the things that I study existed over 13 billion years in the past. And then you can try to study galaxies at different snapshots in time and put together a picture of how they change, how they grow, how they merge, and how they enrich them, themselves and then the universe around them. And so that's what we're trying to do by taking data from galaxies further and further and further away and trying to push our understanding further back in time. And so what we're looking at in the early universe, you know, there hasn't been enough time. Like you said, it's only been like half a billion years from the Big Bang and you haven't had time for a galaxy to grow very big. And to grow very big, galaxies typically merge with other nearby galaxies. So at the very beginning, it was very dense and chaotic and, and we have small galaxies merging and hitting other galaxies really quickly. All of that kip, kicks up the gas, the dust, all the material in those galaxies and ignites star formation. And so the early universe was a was a mess. You know, we, we, we had galaxies colliding constantly and growing into bigger and bigger galaxies and becoming more and more mature and sparking star formation over and over again. Like you mentioned, there was a lot more stars being formed earlier in the universe because of all of these processes. And so now, after the 13 or so billion years have passed, these galaxies have, have coalesced into bigger ones. They've started to calm down. Uh, you know, maybe they've run out of all of that gas and dust that they kicked up. They've made it all into stars. And so you see these elliptical galaxies that don't really have all these dust and, and spirals and things like that. And you have spiral galaxies that, that have ordered motion. You know, they're, they're spinning around in a very ordered way, like our Milky Way. And that's because they haven't had any kind of interaction in a long time. You know, Andromeda, our neighbor galaxy, will run into the Milky Way and kind of start this whole process again. But that is a slower process, so like a less likely and doesn't happen as often now in today's universe, 13 billion years later, because the universe is much more expanded. It is uh, much less dense. Galaxies have had more time to kind of calm down and, and not be so chaotic. So, you know, what we can do is, is try to understand all these processes by looking at different galaxies at different distances, which are at different times in the history of the universe, and trying to piece together this process of how we got to where we are. And you can measure different properties of galaxies, just like distant galaxies, like you said, have less of these heavy metals and, and things like that because you need, you need supernovae to make all of this stuff. You know, we talk about how we're all made of star stuff and that's because you need supernovae to make heavy elements in their core, to explode, to enrich the, the galaxy around them, universe around them, and then spit out all of those heavy metals and, and elements and start all that you know, over again. And, and, and it takes time for all of that to happen. So luckily we live in a universe that's almost 14 billion years old and we've had time to make a lot of these uh, these, these elements to calm down so that we're, we're, we've lived long enough in a stable environment for planets to form, for life to form, and all of those things. But ultimately, it's a, it's a matter of studying this process over time to understand exactly how it works. That must be why if you look at a galaxy like the Milky Way, like we have all of this heavy metals, like uh, we have Black Sabbath and Dio and <laughs> in the distant galaxies, they probably only have like the Beatles and the monkeys and right. this total like low metal, low metal universe, right? <laughs> exactly.
Yeah, obviously that's not quite correct. Um, but what I'm saying is, uh, you know, when we look out at these very distant galaxies, uh, they are, they're fundamentally different. They're fundamentally less evolved. But one of the things I like about looking back at the universe is we can go an extraordinarily large distance, right? You said telescopes are time machines. So when we look at a galaxy that's farther and farther and farther away, it takes longer because the speed of light is only a finite speed. It takes longer from that light for that light emitted by a more distant galaxy to arrive at our eyes. So if we're looking at a galaxy where the light has been traveling for a billion years before it arrives at our eyes, we're looking a billion years back in time at what that galaxy was doing a billion years before the present day. If we're looking at a galaxy whose light had to travel for 10 billion years, we're looking back 10 billion years in time. And since we know that the universe is 13.8 billion years old, we can sort of place a date on any galaxy we observe if we measure the right properties from it. Now, we've been able to go very far back for large numbers of galaxies, back to about, you know, when the universe was maybe, you know, six or seven percent of its current age. Now, we know based on simulations and observations, this, uh, this reionization, this time where the universe becomes transparent to starlight happens when the universe is about 550 million years old. That's only 4% of its current age. Now, there's something fundamentally different. We have a few galaxies we found that are even older than that. Mostly, we see them very Fortunately, we see them because it just so happens that this reionization, that that 550 million year mark I gave, it's not an actual wall. It's like a very jagged edge where in some places the universe reionizes earlier and in other places where maybe you don't form stars on average or have active galaxies or have enough radiation in those places, it doesn't reionize until later. So we've been fortunate enough that we have a few galaxies that go beyond that 550 million year mark all the way down. I think the record holder now is called uh, GN-Z11, which goes back to just 407 million years after the Big Bang to when the universe is only 3% its current age. But that seems to be like the real frontier. That's where we're sort of like treading on the edge of reionization. That's where we can like sort of make that connection between our simulations which is sort of what we have to use to fill in those gaps of what we haven't seen to our observations. That to me is the most interesting edge of where we currently are in trying to understand this. So. I want to ask you, because you actually work with this, like you work in extragalactic astronomy on these distant galaxies, on these very distant galaxies, what do we seek to know about these very distant galaxies that can teach us about the end of the dark ages of our universe? Yeah. I I agree that this is a very fascinating subject. I appreciate uh, you mentioning that because I, I have spent a lot of my time trying to understand it. 
And and like you said, there was there was a time where everything was kind of opaque to, to visible starlight. That that there was there was neutral hydrogen in between galaxies that were eating up all of that light, that were blocking it from escaping and getting to us. We know that this process ended because we can start to see all of these galaxies. And that happens, like you said, 500 and some million years after the Big Bang. So we, we know when the process ended, but we don't know when the process started exactly because we can't quite find that point. We aren't quite there technologically. And so this is the, the boundary between trying to get as much data as we can right now on these early galaxies and then compare that to our simulations. And so the the part that I find truly interesting and, and what we're trying to understand is is did galaxies reionize the universe? Did 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 galaxies emit enough radiation that leaked out of the galaxy itself into the universe around it to ionize all of that neutral hydrogen that was in between the galaxies? Did we need something else like an active black hole in a galaxy that spits out a ton of radiation, um, becomes something called an active galactic nuclei? Did we did we need big big galaxies that make so many stars that the amount of radiation is just so high that it it reionized the universe because it all escaped. You know, did we did we start this process earlier with smaller galaxies because the smaller galaxies don't trap the radiation inside of them as easily as the big ones and so you start this process earlier with small galaxies that leak a lot of radiation from the stars that they're making and then then the big galaxies have had time to form and those started to spit out a lot more radiation because they have a lot more stars and then you have black holes trying to turn on and kind of finish off that process you know we we are looking to understand even what the source of all of this radiation was that that kind of cleared the cosmic fog and ended the dark ages of the universe and and we think that those are galaxies and so like you said, we're trying to understand what about these galaxies, the ones that we can see right now, the ones that happen to be in a place in the universe that may be ionized sooner. And that's that's actually what I'm looking for, is I'm looking for galaxies who I, who I think had enough ionizing radiation to make a bubble of ionized hydrogen around them. And if the bubble is big enough, then that light can pass through and get to us. And how many bubbles did we have early on in the universe? When did the bubbles start? Like, do they overlap? And, and then they start to slowly do this kind of Swiss cheese process of ionizing the universe? I mean, we think that that's what happens. Like you said, it wasn't just a wall. It's a bit of a jagged edge. It was a bit of a process that happened all over. And slowly, all of that ionizing radiation leaked out and kind of filled out the rest of the, the space in between galaxies. So now it's, it's clear and we can see. And so that's what we're looking for, is specific galaxies that might have been the start of this process. And that's kind of the edge of our technological capabilities right now. Uh, so with, with Hubble, we're able to, to look back so far, and sometimes with some of the biggest ground-based telescopes like the Keck Observatory, we're able to look back this far. Because not only does light have to travel a very long distance to get to us, but as it travels and the universe expands, the light gets stretched out to longer and longer wavelengths. And so if what you're looking for is ultraviolet light or visible light from a galaxy from these big bright stars that are ionizing the universe, over the 13 billion years that it took to get to you, that light has stretched out into the infrared. And the infrared wavelengths are really difficult for us to observe 
from the ground because the atmosphere happens to be in our way. And so what do we need to do technologically to be able to see these very distant things is, is we need to look at a different wavelength than they emitted the light at, but we also need to look at things that are super, super, super faint. Uh, the further away a candle is from you, the fainter it looks, and that's the same for galaxies. And so we're pushing the edge of what we can dis discover now with, with our current capabilities. Yeah, in fact, I'm I'm willing to bet, and I'll I'll bet anyone out there. I'm I'm not a betting man, so I won't tell you what I'll bet. But I I'm willing to bet anyone out there that the current record holder for the most distant galaxy, the one I mentioned, GN-Z11, I bet you that that is the most distant galaxy that the Hubble Space Telescope, which found it will ever find yeah. and I bet you that the next record holder the one that breaks it will have to come from a future observatory like perhaps the James Webb Space Telescope and the reason I'm betting that this is at the limit of what Hubble can detect is because Hubble goes into the infrared. If you look at the wavelength range of what human eyes can see, we can see from, from violet light, which is about 400 nanometers in wavelength, down to about red light, which is 700 nanometers in wavelength. Hubble, from its position in space, it can observe ultraviolet light, and it can observe all of the visible light range, and it can go a bit into the infrared and see light that's maybe three times the wavelength of our visible light range. What we saw with that galaxy's GN-Z11, it emitted ultraviolet light. The light we see from it was emitted in the ultraviolet, and during its journey through the expanding universe, that ultraviolet light, what we're detecting, was emitted at just 121 nanometers, gets stretched through the ultraviolet range, out of the ultraviolet range, into the visible light range, all the way through the visible light range, into the infrared, all the way to about three times what visible light's range is. And that's the light we see. And we see that it's actually being partly absorbed by this opaque gas, by the neutral hydrogen gas. But enough of it makes it through that we can see, oh, that is a galaxy. We can get a spectrum of it. We can detect how far away it is. And this is the farthest galaxy we've ever seen. So that's the current record holder we have. I want to ask you a little bit about these distant galaxies we see. Are the galaxies we're seeing that are among the most distant ones we've seen, do we believe that these are actually representative of the majority of galaxies that exist in the universe at that time? Or, like you said, because we are limited by how faint we can observe, are we really only seeing the galaxies that are the biggest and brightest and most spectacular examples of what a galaxy can possibly be this early in the universe and we just happen to be oh those are the ones that we can actually detect with our current instruments yeah it's definitely the latter so so this galaxy that you're talking about the reason that we're able to see it so far back is because 
we used the the magic, <laughs> the black magic math of gravitational lensing to actually lens this galaxy, which means that there was a big group cluster of galaxies, this huge amount of mass in the universe, enough mass that it bent the light around it. So the light from this galaxy that was behind this group of galaxies, the light from this very distant galaxy, GNZ 11, was actually magnified by this gravitational effect. And that was the only reason that we were able to find something that far away. So some of these other galaxies, like ones that I'm looking for, aren't quite that distant. I'm not going to break the record uh, because I don't have the, the boost from gravitational uh, lensing effects. But the galaxies that we're looking for, our ability to detect them, like you said, Hubble can look that far back, but but we, we need bigger and better instruments in order to see things that are fainter. And so Hubble is great. It's a beautiful telescope, and I love it. Nothing against Hubble. But the, the mirror is small. And so for, for things that are very, very faint, you need to grab as much light as you possibly can. You need a bigger bucket, basically, for the light to come into and to gather all of those those little photons of light from this galaxy. And so what we're studying and what we're seeing right now are the biggest and the brightest galaxies at that time, the ones that maybe are, are making stars way more than anything else around them so that there's so much more starlight being emitted from them, the ones that maybe have crazy supernova explosions going off and are, and are making big, big uh, bubbles of ionization around them and, and the, the things that's going to be really, really super interesting, and you mentioned the James Webb Space Telescope, is that it is a much bigger mirror. It is made to work solely in the infrared. So now we can look even further back in time, but we can also look at things that are fainter. And so what we're able to study now, and the things that we study now, are probably the most extreme systems that existed at that time in the universe. But with James Webb and future telescopes, we'll be able to see more of the traditional galaxies. I don't know that we'll get to a point, even with that telescope, to understand fundamentally how common or how rare uh, these these galaxies are that we're detecting now, but we'll have a much better picture. Yeah, and this, this sort of, you know, you mentioned something earlier that made me think of a big question that uh, exists in my subfield of structure formation of, uh, of how the universe grows up is we sort of had this picture for decades. We had these two competing pictures of, hey, when we look at the galaxies that we have in the universe today, how did they grow up? Did they form from what we call a bottom-up scenario, which means that you have these very small seeds of structure that grow and that, you know, form star clusters that start to merge together and form proto-galaxies and then they start to merge together and they form bigger galaxies and they start to merge together and so on and finally you wind up at modern day galaxies or do we have this top-down scenario where actually you have the seeds of structure on large scales and you have these big clouds that sort of break up and collapse and maybe fragment and then they all uh, you know and then they produce like the star clusters the galaxies etc and is that where we get the structure from and this was sort of a big question that people argued about in the 1960s that you had the uh, the top-down camp which was mostly based in Zeldovich and the work that was done in the Soviet Union and then on the other hand you had the Jim Peebles camp and Peebles won the Nobel Prize last year because of his structure formation work where he mostly argued for the bottom-up approach and today we actually know it's a hybrid of 
those two, that you get seed fluctuations on all scales. Now it seems like you're asking like an even harder question because we're not just looking at mass and gravity and the types of structures that form. You're actually starting to ask what is the fractional contribution of ionizing starlight to or ionizing light in general ionizing radiation period to reionizing the universe to taking the universe from this opaque electrically neutral state to this ionized transparent to light state so how do you go about answering that what would be the key things you would need to measure in order to figure out the answer to that? Yeah, uh, well, there's a lot of key things, right? So what we're trying to understand is, is it's possible that galaxies at this early time, these very big, bright systems that we're able to detect right now, potentially the star formation efficiency, like how efficient was a galaxy at turning the gas and the dust and the material that it had into a star? Was that fundamentally a more efficient process earlier on in the universe? We see it happening today in closer galaxies, things that, that like our own Milky Way or neighboring galaxies that we can study in much more detail and see these little regions where stars are forming and, and watching, quote unquote watching, this process go down. Um, in, in, a, in a closer environment and in detail, did, did these galaxies early on fundamentally form stars differently? We don't know. I mean, the material involved, like you mentioned, was not as many of like the heavier elements. It was mostly hydrogen and helium. So was it a more efficient process then? Is that why we see galaxies with a bunch of stars that are exploding quickly and living short lives and, and ionizing and spitting out a bunch of radiation around them? Or, or, or is this process something that we still don't really understand? And so what we're, what we're trying to, to figure out really is, 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 are these galaxies fundamentally different? Do we, do we only see the extreme systems? Are, are they all coming together um, in, in, in a process that like takes time uh, given the different contributions of different types of galaxies and without the ability to really study some of the smaller ones or, or in detail study even the ones that we can see, we, we have to rely somewhat on simulations. And so there's different simulations where we've taken a computer and we've said, okay, let's turn all these little no, no, like nozzles around and, and turn up the star formation in these galaxies and turn up the opacity in these galaxies and let less radiation out of this one. Or maybe we have a black hole that starts to like po punch a hole in the galaxy so a bunch of radiation can get out. And, and, and given all of these different things that we can turn on, do we produce the, do we reionize the universe in time? Do we, when we run our simulation through the first some billion years, do we get to the point where we are observing a very ionized universe at the right time? And so the other thing that we can do is, is we can continue to try to study that very distant universe, but what we also can do, and there's a lot of people able to do this, and this is a big field right now, is, is studying close by galaxies that we think might be a good analog for what galaxies in the early universe were like. 
So maybe these close-by galaxies didn't live in a part of the universe that was dense. They, they, weren't, they weren't around a bunch of other galaxies. They didn't uh, merge a bunch of times. They haven't had a bunch of enrichment like we talked about earlier where we've had lots of stars and supernovae and, and mingling of, of gas and dust and other galaxies. So they've kind of grown up on their own and this slower process of star formation, this, this more infantile type galaxy exists today all by itself in a very uh, low dense part of the universe. And if we can study those galaxies in more detail because they're much closer to us and uh, we don't have to worry about the red shifting or the stretching out of the light, uh, we can study it at, at visible or UV wavelengths, which we have great capability with Hubble and ground-based telescopes to do so, we can start to try to draw like, comparisons between these galaxies that we think have similar properties to the early galaxies and study those in detail and try to then paint a picture of what these early universe galaxies look like. So there's two different ways, uh, I mean there's many different ways, but there's two different ways we can approach this and trying to understand this process. And I, I think it'd be remiss not to mention the fact that you can actually just look at the neutral hydrogen. So, so, so there's there's all of this neutral hydrogen gas in between galaxies, and that's what we're trying to get rid of by ionizing uh, all of that 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 gas in between galaxies, so that light can then travel through to get to it. But we can actually look at this hydrogen gas in the radio wavelengths, and so uh, we're looking for for a map of this neutral hydrogen at the radio wavelengths because that is where it emits its radiation. And uh, we don't quite yet have, uh, again, the technological capability to do a, a really good job of pinning this down, but we're starting to beat down the, the statistics and understanding uh, percentage-wise, at least, of the universe that was neutral. And so you can directly measure how much of the universe was neutral by looking at the neutral hydrogen, or you can indirectly measure how much of the universe was ionized by looking for galaxies you're able to detect through the fog. And so we're trying to approach it in multiple different ways. I mean, that multi-pronged approach is really, uh, you know, wherever you can take it, it's going to be productive. The more independent and complementary lines of evidence you can collect that point to here's what the universe is doing, the more confident we can be. And for those of you who are listening who uh, who maybe uh, aren't afraid to go through the Starts With a Bang archives, uh, I would highly recommend for a discussion of the radio capabilities of looking for these uh, complementary signatures uh, to look for our podcast with Elizabeth Fernandez uh, from about a year ago where we talked about this in detail. Uh, but I want to come back to something you talked about just a little bit ago, which is you talked about, okay, these very early galaxies, the ones that exist before the universe becomes mostly reionized, the ones that exist um, back when it's still surrounded by neutral hydrogen gas and lots of it, uh, you said that these different galaxies are basically going to make bubbles that you know I, I sort of imagine this the way I imagine the the local little bubbles we see in in our own galaxy where okay we know we have gas here and we're forming some stars and where we see star formation we have this ultraviolet radiation and it carves out sort of this ionized bubble in there where you have ionized gas 
contained within a bubble, so I guess it's ionized plasma, contained within a bubble that's bordered by neutral gas, that this ionizing radiation carves out a spherical or spheroidal bubble in space against this sort of backdrop of neutral gas. So if I go all the way back into the very young universe, it's all neutral gas except where you have these bubbles. And this, I feel, is really interesting because my instinct would be to say, oh, yeah, let's go look for these bubbles. Wait a minute, those bubbles are bordered by light-blocking gas. How will we see through it? I have a feeling this is where the infrared telescopes are going to be at their most powerful. Yeah, so that is a really, really important point. So like you said, we're, we're looking for these bubbles, but they are surrounded by a bunch of neutral hydrogen. So how, how do we see through the neutral hydrogen to the bubble? And so this is, a, this is a cool little trick, maybe, of quantum mechanics a little bit here. But what we're looking at, the thing that we actually detect is the light from the stars in the galaxy. And so because these galaxies are so far away, I can't be like, oh, I got light from this star and this star and this star. I'll add it all up and that's the light from my galaxy. We only see one little dot and that's our whole galaxy. All of the stars, all of the gas, all of the dust, all of it is just a tiny little dot. And so everything that's in that galaxy we see as one thing. So when we talk about the light from the galaxy, it's really what we're looking at specifically or what I'm looking at specifically is the light from the stars in the galaxy that I can't resolve into individual sources. But so what I'm looking at and detecting is that galaxy inside this bubble surrounded by this neutral hydrogen. So yes, it's made a bubble. And yes, all of that light that I'm looking for can travel freely through the bubble. But what happens when it hits that wall of neutral hydrogen? Well, so the light, like we talked about, takes time to travel, right? So light only has a finite speed. And so if you exist in a bubble that's big enough, that the light takes long enough to travel through that bubble to the edge of it, and the universe is still expanding, that light is getting stretched to the point where it is no longer in resonance with that neutral hydrogen. So in order for neutral hydrogen to eat up all of this light, it has to interact with the light. But now this light has taken so long to get from this galaxy to the edge of this bubble that is now stretched to a wavelength that no longer interacts with the neutral hydrogen. And so we are looking at big enough bubbles that the light has stretched on its journey through the bubble such that it can now travel through that neutral hydrogen. And so we're looking for these sources inside of these bubbles and trying to see how common they are, which might tell us a little bit more about how often these bubbles existed, how big these bubbles would be, and if they are all close together, then we can use that as kind of an indirect measure of how, what percentage of the universe is ionized. That's really fascinating. So what you're, what you're telling me, if I'm understanding this right, is that, okay, if I have a, uh, a child with a gallon of chocolate milk. I don't know why you're giving a child a gallon of chocolate milk and you give them just a very very small set of straws like like some some tiny like pipette diameter straws and you let the kid blow bubbles in their chocolate milk. Um, you're saying okay look you're gonna produce these tiny little bubbles 
And these tiny little bubbles, you can imagine, are like regions of star formation. That this is where your star formation occurs in the very early universe. And because they're so tiny, these these photons that are emitted, you know, whether they're ultraviolet, visible, whatever, uh, they're not going to be stretched very much. They won't have a lot of time to travel. And so when they hit that neutral gas, they're going to be absorbed by the neutral gas. But if instead I gave them those uh, those uh, those giant straws that you get when you go and uh, accidentally order some boba tea at the store, uh, right? You you get those really big straws and you start blowing these massive bubbles in there. Well, all of a sudden, when these bubbles get big, if that's the kind of bubble that your star forming region is is blowing, um, now you start talking about very long periods of time. And remember, in the early universe, when things are younger, it's expanding much more rapidly. So if you take your hands and you hold them a certain distance apart, if you double the distance between them, you can basically imagine one wave, one wave existing between your hands and as you stretch your hands to be twice as far apart the wavelength is now twice as long which is enough to take you from visible into infrared or ultraviolet into visible but if instead of a factor of two you stretch it by a factor of 20 or a hundred or some large number well now you can start stretching that light to wavelengths that maybe are so long that by time you get to the edge of the bubble wall, it's sort of like those pictures you see of the Milky Way galaxy. If you look up at the Milky Way galaxy with your own eyes or with a visible light telescope, you're going to see, yeah, it's full of stars. You have all of those stars, but in front of them, you have these dark regions, and those are caused by light-blocking neutral matter. It's caused by dust in our galaxy, but it's light-blocking is the important thing. But if you look in the infrared and if you move into the near infrared and then you move into the mid infrared you're basically going to longer and longer wavelengths you'll notice you can see through the dust you can see through the stuff that blocks the light what you're painting for me even though this is gas and not dust is a very similar picture you're saying look there are certain wavelengths that this hydrogen this light blocking material can absorb and if you stretch your light to long enough wavelengths none of the hydrogen will be able to absorb it it could pass through it and therefore you'll be able even though it'll redshift the wavelength will stretch farther and farther before it arrives at your eyes if you look in the right wavelength range if you look at something that has been stretched long enough you can actually go back and detect the starlight that's powering these bubbles even in the first few percent of the age of the universe. Yes, exactly. And that's been my latest research project using the Keck Observatory to try to see the signatures of these bright stars in these galaxies inside these bubbles that have scattered and stretched out of resonance with the neutral hydrogen and then traveled 13 billion years to reach us just to hit our telescope so that we can understand more about our universe. I mean that sounds uh, that sounds like the the ultimate time machine. You know, most of us when we talk about time machines, we want to go back like, you know, years or decades or maybe centuries to like some event in recent human history. And your time machine is taking you back to basically a time before 
maybe even before rocky planets could have existed in the universe you're you're taking us all the way back to the earliest stars that that we can see exactly yeah as far back as we can we keep pushing that boundary all right well let's speculate a little bit then um when we talk about what we are detecting right we we see these stars we see these galaxies one of the things that we have not yet been able to reveal are what we call in the community population three stars these would be the very first stars in the universe this would be the stars made out of pristine material hydrogen and helium only that has never before formed stars in the universe that has never been polluted by supernovae or gamma ray bursts or mergers of previous stars that these are truly a sample of stars that are formed from material that was formed in the big bang and has never been processed or reprocessed or recycled or inside a star since now i want to ask you do we have a hope of actually detecting that in the coming years oh I would that would be that would be incredible so these population three stars like you talked about they're hydrogen and helium they are the the materials from the Big Bang and nothing else and so these are some of the first stars that were ever ever formed in the universe and so the things that I study while we talk about it being you know 400 million years after the Big Bang they're galaxies which which comprise several hundreds maybe thousands of stars at this point they're small galaxies they're small little messed up balls and uh, of of you know gas and dust and stars and these kinds of things that all have all become gravitationally bound but when we we try to go look even further back than that, what we're what we're looking for are some of the first stars. So when everything was just gas and dust, and then gravity started to compress denser parts of the universe into stars and made these big, bright populations three stars. What what we want to know is is how long did they live? You know, what were they like? Uh, how big were they? How bright were they? How common were they? Uh, and then all of those stars started to form, explode, enrich the the area around them, and and bigger and bigger structures like you talked about before start to form. I think right now it would be great if the James Webb Space Telescope was able to detect these population three stars. But remember how we talked about things being super faint the further away that they are? I think we still might not be able to get to that point. It would be amazing if we could. Um, I think uh, the next generation past that and maybe the giant Magellan Telescope and, and, and some of the bigger instruments that are being built that are even bigger than James Webb that are going to come afterwards might be what we need to directly detect these population three stars. Yeah, I think I think you're probably right about detecting the population three stars that are forming, um, I guess, behind this wall of reionization, behind the jagged wall, so to speak. Uh, but I think we might get lucky, and the way I'm I'm sort of hoping we get lucky is because the universe doesn't reionize evenly, because we have this jagged wall. That means we're not only going to have regions that reionize earlier than average where there's no more neutral matter 
um, between the starlight and our eyes uh, earlier than 550 million years, we're also going to have populations of neutral gas. They might be small, they might be irregular, but we're also going to have populations of neutral gas that still persist after the average region of space is reionized. And if that gas can collapse and form stars, I think that might be our best bet for finding a sample of these population three stars. I don't think they'll be the first stars in the universe, but I think we might be able to find stars that have the same properties as the universe's first stars. We're just seeing them later because they're sort of these, the, the first star stragglers. It's like they, uh, it, it's sort of like if you have a, have like a hundred meter race and you have like world-class sprinters and then you put like some toddlers at the starting line too like eventually those toddlers are going to cross the finish line but it'll be way later than the than the people who got there first and i wonder if that might be a way that we could actually get lucky with current generation instruments like james webb yeah, that's a really good point. So it's it's akin to what I mentioned before with these local analog galaxies for for very distant galaxies, galaxies that 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 grew up kind of isolated, that were in a in a very very low dense pocket of the universe, but still you know forming and doing all those things at a slower process since they weren't interacting with the stuff around them. So these these stars in the early universe, there's there's of course there were always these parts of of less. Uh, less material or less matter and and weren't quite so interactive with everything around them and so if we have a pocket of those kind of population three stars those toddler stars that took a little bit longer but are not any less significant to form those stars we would be able to see uh, farther back that way uh, so I mean I'm hopeful I'm not I'm not expecting it but but there are times just like when we have a gravitational lensing assist to find a, a very very distant galaxy like GNZ 11 we do get lucky sometimes and find some of these really rare occurrences uh, in the early universe, and so I would, I would, I would very much love to see that. I hope, I hope it happens. I, I don't, I don't know how likely that is. Yeah, and I think, I think that's fair. I, I don't know how likely it is either. If we knew, we wouldn't need to go out and do the science. And even though I'm a theorist and you're an observer, I think like we, we all agree. Like you, you really need to do the observations if you want to know what's out there. I want to ask you something that um, that puzzled me when I first learned about it, so I'm curious to know your take on it. Um, you can form stars very early on, and you can start reionizing the universe very early on. According to some of the simulations I've seen, uh, it's possible that we can form the very, very, very first stars in the universe, like the, the first ones of all, maybe even as early as just 50 to 100 million years after the Big Bang. If you were to ask, like, look omnidirectionally throughout the universe and could magically detect the stars you formed for the first time, they might actually exist that early on. But I, I worry that even if we formed stars that early on, that the universe might still be so dense and so neutral in general and so full of matter that that blast of radiation from the stars, it might form a bubble and it might ionize the gas around it. Uh, but what's to prevent those 
ionized electrons and those ionized atomic nuclei, once those stars quiet down or those first stars die, because if they're supermassive and emit all that radiation, they probably don't live very long, what is there to prevent that matter, those positive and negative ions, from finding each other and becoming neutral gas once again? Pretty much nothing. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's a process, right? It's not just like we talked about an instantaneous, oh, we've had radiation, it's hit these things, now it's ionized and it's going to be ionized forever. No, I mean, everything's a process, right? So everything is going to end up being a, a situation where there's still potential for for these these newly ionized uh, particles to to become neutral again, and so what you need is you don't just need a, a a star to emit enough radiation to ionize it. You need it to keep going. You need it to keep being enough radiation over time for it to keep this process from becoming neutral again. So, like you said, like there there's probably all kinds of small pockets of things happening, but it takes time for for that light to get out. It needs to be a big enough bubble. It needs to have lasted long enough to keep the the hydrogen ionized and and all of these things need to kind of work out in our favor uh for us to detect those. And unfortunately, the universe has no obligation to do things that work out for us. No, and that's sort of this frustrating thing I've always thought when I've thought about the dark ages and reionization and how they end is this seems like a Sisyphean thing to work on because you don't just have like, oh, I'm trying to push this boulder up the hill and it wants to roll back down. You don't just have two things working against each other. You have some things that work in your favor. Uh, but then they work against you, but then they work in your favor depending on time and conditions um, because you have the expanding universe and the expanding universe stretches the wavelength, but it also makes the matter more dilute in general. And you have gravitational collapse, which, you know, the universe is more uniform early on, but then it gets clumpier later. So where you have a bigger clump, you're more likely to form stars, but also you have a denser collection of gas. So you have to work against that. And I feel like um, I feel like this environment gets very messy very fast even just from a theoretical perspective and then you have to add the observational challenges on top of that to say like oh yeah we know this gets emitted but the signal gets eaten by the gas so we don't get to observe it and yeah that radiation exists but it peters out and it's too faint for us to see by time it gets here um, how I mean, I think it's unfair to ask you, how do you like deal with all of this? But um, do you ever get overwhelmed by the complexity of all of this? Or is that actually part of what you love about it? I think both. I mean, you know, like we've I mean, we've talked about all these conditions having to be, you know, ideal for us to even detect what we're looking for, but we haven't even mentioned the fact that it has taken 13 billion years for this light to travel through the universe to us. And it's gotta like not hit anything along the way. It's gotta not, run into another galaxy or a star or a cloud of dust or gas or something like this that that it actually reaches us is already pretty exciting. Um, and it is complex and it is difficult and it is one of those things that I really enjoy because we do have to keep coming up with technological advances. We have to keep trying to, to, to 
to f find new ways to, to look at these things. And I think that it is incredibly overwhelming when you sit back and you think, like, what am I really looking at? Like, this is a thing that existed 13 billion years ago, and I'm able to study that. And, and I don't think that awe or that, you know, feeling of just excitement goes away. I, I think it's overwhelming. I, I, I find I find the vastness of everything to be somewhat terrifying still. And, you know, so I try not to think about that part about it and then try to fix all the problems and solve all the little complexities. Uh, and and just be be as, as cautious as I can about the things that we find and, and as clear about our limits as we possibly can. And and be honest about like how likely these things are defined. You know, I've I've spent the past two years looking for these galaxies. I've looked at 27 different ones, and I've only found a signal from one. You know, so it's wow. already very wow. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, it's already very very difficult to do, and to 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 be sad about like oh my gosh, I only have one galaxy that I've been able to find. But I've, I found a galaxy. Like, you know, you have to put it into perspective, right? These things existed a long time ago. These conditions had to be ideal. We had to already take all of the information we had from, from other telescopes, all of the images that we have, all of the data that we have before, and to put together a good list of things to even look for. And to find one is incredibly exciting, even though sometimes it feels like you haven't quite succeeded when you didn't find anything else. Yeah, but that's also like, look, if this is if this is something you found that that no one else has been able to find using the data you've used or using the techniques you've used, like you've basically like made an empirical existence proof that this works. Yeah, yeah, I thank you. I keep trying to remind myself of that every time it becomes incredibly difficult to do. <laughs> well, it's going to continue to be as long as we have the current generation of instruments that we have. From a, from a theoretical perspective, one of the things that, that really uh, sort of gets me jazzed about this field is the realization that when we look at a very distant galaxy or quasar or something that, that emits its own light is we can see at a bunch of different locations, we can see actually there is some gas there. There is some neutral gas in between this light emitting source and our eyes because every time there is gas we see you get a dip in the spectrum you get a absorption feature we call this like a a Lyman alpha trough or dip um, because hydrogen gas is there and the n equals 1 to n equals 2 transition is the most powerful line spectral line we see we call this the Lyman alpha line because it's alpha it's the first line in the Lyman series which is the first series of excited to unexcited hydrogen so when I look at a distant quasar I see basically a forest of all of these dips that at different redshifts, at different locations, wherever that light gets completely absorbed, I know there's hydrogen gas there. And so I get this forest along any pencil beam line of sight that comes back where I can map out here's where the gas clouds are. What fascinates me is once I go behind that jagged wall 
into the dark ages, into where I have neutral hydrogen, that entire forest gets killed. That entire forest gets wiped out and suppressed. The the buzzword, what astronomers call that, we call that the Gunn-Peterson trough. But I feel like that is just like a cosmic joke that the universe plays on astronomers to say like, oh, you want to map out all the gas in the universe? Well, you can do that as long as your galaxy is in front of this wall. Because once you put your galaxy behind that wall, we're never going to let you have that information. Why is the universe so cruel to us like that? Oh my goodness, I wish I knew. But, you know, there's a really cool side effect from that. So you're right, once we get to the point where there's so much neutral hydrogen in the universe in between galaxies, you no longer can map out single absorption features every time that light hits a, like a pocket of gas or goes through another thing that is blocking that light. You just have so much of it that all of the light is absorbed by all this neutral hydrogen. So what ends up happening is you see this feature where all of the light uh, at a short enough wavelength that it interacts with neutral hydrogen is just absorbed and gone and we will never see from this galaxy. But everything else that exists at longer wavelengths that is emitted by these galaxies is still there. And so what we are able to do is we're able to look for galaxies behind that wall by looking for ones that we do not see any of that light from, but we do see some of the longer wavelength light. And so we do this by taking images of fields of galaxies or just spots on the sky at different wavelengths. And then we start to look and see, okay, at what point does this galaxy, at what wavelength do I start to see this galaxy show up in my images? And I know that that must be past that point where all of the galaxy light has been eaten up by the neutral hydrogen. So the way we look for distant galaxies, the way we try to even find them, to classify them, to count them, is by looking for this effect. And so while it's very frustrating that we can't study some of the UV light or the uh, light emitted by these galaxies and we can't map out the the, the, the gas in the, in the universe, what we can do is we can use that as a really cool tracer for how far away a galaxy is. I mean, that's, uh, I think, I think you just Buddhismed me right there. Like that was, uh, oh yeah, like you're worried that that information is missing and we're not getting it, but cheer up. The fact that that information is missing makes it very easy to identify where are the galaxies behind the wall. Just look, look for the galaxies that don't have any of those features where it's all wiped out. And then at longer wavelengths, you can see what's there. And now you know, like, oh, that one's behind the wall. There you go. Yeah. Exactly. Well, you know, sometimes our uh, our problems become solutions if you want to think about it in a different way. Well, that's uh, I think that's going to forever change my uh, dour perspective on the Gun Peterson trough and make it a little cheerier. So thanks for that. Good. I'm happy. Yeah. So one thing that I want to make sure we hit is um, right now, you know, at the limits of our instrumentation, we are, we're, we're studying nearby galaxies, we're studying ionization bubbles, we're studying um, these different signatures of light of different wavelengths passing through uh, gas, dust, etc. And we're looking at these most distant galaxies in the universe with our largest aperture ground base and space-based telescopes, our most advanced instruments, and the best techniques we have. We're learning what we can observe. We're learning where galaxies are, at least where the brightest galaxies among the most distant are. But 
right there's a limit there's a limit to what we currently see and what we've currently known we have you've already mentioned we've talked about the james webb space telescope is going to be humanity's premier infrared observatory from space it's got a larger diameter than hubble it's got more light gathering power and it's also sensitive to much longer wavelengths so right now hubble is detecting infrared light but it was emitted in the ultraviolet James Webb Space Telescope is going to detect mid-infrared light that was emitted in the near-infrared. So we're going to have light that was emitted, ultraviolet, visible, infrared, any of it that gets through, James Webb will be able to see. We also have next-generation ground-based telescopes. You mentioned the giant Magellan Telescope. Uh, you haven't mentioned the European Extremely Large Telescope, which is also being built. And we, we all hope that someday, somewhere, uh, the 30-meter telescope, at least somewhere in the northern hemisphere, it will also have one of these next-generation ground-based telescopes. What questions that we don't have the answer to today are we confident that this next generation of observatories will be able to teach us? What are these on-the-horizon discoveries that you're excited about? What are the big questions regarding reionization in the Dark Ages that you are looking forward to having answers to? So I, I think to me right now, we're trying, like we talked about, is to just find these things, to find the most extreme systems, to find the ones that might just be serendipitously somewhere that we've already studied, that we, we can make a good guess on, and that might have been in like the perfect conditions to get the information to us. I think with these with these new generations of telescopes and the, and the current upgrades in technology that we're working on, we'll be able to study these galaxies in detail. Why is this galaxy big? Why is this galaxy bright? Why is it making so many stars? What is happening? We can start to understand what's actually like characterizing this galaxy in, in, in its properties, its types of stars, how quickly it makes them, and, and understanding details about these galaxies in general. But, but we can also, like we said before, put them in context. These galaxies are bright and they are rare, but how bright and how rare are they? And what's what else is going on? We'll be able to to study, you know, uh, the the giant Magellan telescope is is I mentioned because I'm you know at, at an institution that has has put money towards this, but it it will have a field of view, meaning the amount of area on the sky that it can look at is going to be many many times that what we can study right now. The Roman telescope is going to have many, many times the field of view that Hubble can look at. So in one image, you see more of the universe than you would in, in some of these telescopes with smaller fields of view. And so now when you take a picture with Hubble and you see 10,000 galaxies in it, with Roman, you're going to be able to see a million galaxies or something insane like that in just one image. And so the amount of data that we're going to have, the amount of context that we're going to be able to build for the universe these early times is going to be phenomenally greater than what we have right now. Right now we're just barely detecting a single galaxy or two or, or, or one at the very, very distant end. But we're going to be able to discover multiple galaxies. And, and you know, one detection is great, but statistically understanding, understanding like what that what the properties of the galaxy, how it fits in, and what's going on on a larger scale is is going to be revolutionary. And I and I'm very excited. 
So it sounds like there's actually three big advances that are coming just, you know, we know are coming based on the fact that our instruments are improving. Uh, and one is a faintness that we're going to be able to see fainter objects. We're going to be able to see them because our instruments are more sensitive. The things we can't see today, some of them are going to be revealed to us in the future. The second is detail. We are going to be able to not only measure and detect them, but we're going to be able to characterize them. Maybe they'll take up more pixels in our telescope. Maybe we'll be able to see uh, whether they're rotating, how fast they're rotating, what the different compositions are as a function of radius. Like we'll actually be able to measure some of these details. And finally, the big one you, you mentioned a little bit is statistics that instead of an object here or two objects there or no objects there, we might be getting 50, 100 times as many objects with the same direction duration observation because we have wider field views, we have superior instruments, we have wider fields with more light gathering power and better resolution that we can reveal the objects or maybe even find that this source that looked like one object is actually multiple sources. Um, that these are all going to be improvements. So we're looking at better statistics, more details, and the ability to characterize objects that are currently beyond our detection capabilities. Exactly, yeah. Further back in time, more at a time, and higher detail. All right, well, can I ask you then, if you'd be willing to speculate, um, what is your great hope if you're willing to say like, you know what I'd really love for this line of work to be able to reveal, what what do you recognize as a legitimate possibility that you would love to be able to learn from doing this research? One thing, you want me to pick one thing? Uh, you don't have to pick only one, but I'd love it if you picked at least one. Um, I really, I think that understanding this reionization process, this this process of, of all of this stuff in between galaxies going from being neutral hydrogen to ionized hydrogen, for the dark ages to be over so that the light from these galaxies can travel to us freely without being eaten up, to understand what did that? What, like, what was the source of this, this radiation that had to be emitted into the universe? How long did this process take? When did it start? And, 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 and trying to answer all of that is really important because it's the last time the universe went through a major phase change. I mean, we talked about inflation, you talked about the cosmic microwave background, we talked about all these things that happened before all of that. And so what we're looking at is the last major change in the universe as a whole. And I think that understanding that process, why it happened, how it happened, and and, and, and the, some of the, the sources of, of that change, to me, is fundamentally a very interesting question that could tell us some more about how these galaxies behaved or if the universe was different early on than it is now. Well, that's fascinating. No love for the dark energy transition, by the way, but that's okay. I'll I, forgive that. Well, you know, <laughs> I mean... <laughs> that's okay. I'm just giving you a little bit See, of crack here at the end. Enough. 
No, I mean, um, there's so many things that we can talk about that these next generation of observatories, this new technology, all of the things that we're building, there's so many questions that we can answer. And we could talk for hours about, you know, we can look at atmospheres about of, of planets around other stars with some of these new things. We can, we can put dark energy in context. We can measure, you know, the expansion of the universe over time and see how that's changing. We can do all kinds of things with these new telescopes. And, and, and astronomers, typically, we specialize in one field. You specialize in structure formation, and and you are a theorist, and you know I specialize in in extragalactic astronomy in the early universe, and and people study the stars themselves, or maybe even our own galaxy, and so all of these things are going to benefit from these new telescopes. It's not just one field of astronomy. We're building an instrument that can be used by everyone in the field for all kinds of things, and I think that that's a really important thing to remember. Oh, yeah. I mean, a general all-purpose observatory like James Webb. I mean, when you think about why Hubble was built, it was built to measure the Hubble constant, and it was wildly successful at that. You know, we had uncertainties that were on the order of 100% before the Hubble Space Telescope, and after 11 years, the Hubble Space Telescope key project was published, and all of a sudden, it had pinned down the value, and the uncertainty was reduced from 100% to 10%. It was a phenomenal success. And yet here we are 30 years on. It's been 19 years since the Hubble Space Telescope key project was published. And I would argue that's not even the most important thing that the Hubble Space Telescope measured or discovered. I would say that the characterization of dark energy, which is what was what Hubble basically enabled with its detection of high redshift supernova from about redshift of 0.8 onward, far more impressive. So it's arguable that these 30 meter class telescopes and the um, James Webb Space Telescope, that the rationale we have for building them and the science questions we're intent on investigating with them, they may not even wind up being the greatest discoveries that were made by these telescopes. Like we might not even be anticipating the biggest discoveries that are going to come out of them. Yeah, I mean, there's so much we don't know, but there's also so much we don't know that we don't know. And that's the truly exciting part to me is is what's going to surprise us uh, with, with all of our new capabilities. I mean, gravitational waves revolutionize astronomy. We've looked at everything that we've looked at, and it's just light. All we're doing in, in learning is is through light and, and electromagnetic radiation and, and understanding of the universe is solely based on that. And now here we have gravitational waves, and, and we can study the universe in a whole other way. And so who knows what's the next big thing that's going to completely change it. Absolutely. Absolutely. And thank you for the unwitting plug of the July 2020 Starts With a Bang podcast with Dr. Ira Thorpe, where we talked exactly about the future of gravitational wave astronomy. So, uh, Rebecca, I want to thank you for joining me and for an illuminating and wide-ranging conversation that has taken us from the nearby universe all the way back to the dark ages behind the jagged wall of neutral gas. I'd like to ask you, if you have a moment, if there are any final thoughts you'd like to leave our listeners with. Well, first, thank you so much. I'm really excited that I get to talk to you about these kinds of things. I find them fascinating, and I hope that other people do enjoy learning about it. I think the only um, thing that I want to bring up is 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 a little bit about what you're doing here with this podcast. I think that astronomers, we're scientists, and, and part of our job is to increase the knowledge of humanity's place in the universe. And part of that job includes sharing that knowledge with humanity. 
what we do only matters if we include all of our understanding in the collective knowledge of human, the human race and our place here in the universe. So things like your podcast and, and reaching out and talking to people and sharing the things that we're studying with the world is, is a very important part of our job. And I think it's the, the point of what we do. And so I appreciate all of the time that you take in, in putting this podcast together and, and all of the people who, who communicate the science that they're studying to to the world because I think that we could use a lot more scientific understanding and it will ultimately make us a more accomplished, a safer, a healthier, and potentially more wide-faring race in the galaxy. Well, thank you very much for that kind message, Rebecca. I'm very pleased you were able to join us and thank you for sharing your voice and your knowledge and your expertise with not just me, but with all of our listeners out there. I'd like to thank everyone for tuning in and I'd like to especially thank the Starts With a Bang Patreon supporters. Without your support, none of this would be possible and I'd like to give a shout out to everyone donating at the $5 a month level and above. Thanks go to Samir Kumar, Chad Marler, Thomas Moore, Matt Conroe, Tim Graham, Frank, John Methot, Aaron Weiss, Pete Smoyer, Chris Jakutas, Jeffrey David Maricini, Stefan Berniger, Paulina Barron, Pierre Franson, John Van Balaguyan, Charles Buchanan, Dominic Turpin, Hellbender, Punitive Expedition, Pavel Zuzelski, Rob Hansen, Pedro Texera, Igor Mitrofanov, Vlad Paschovsky, Sean Foley, Sergei Gordienko, Juan Jose Gomez Garcia, Jens Kroger, Joseph Dvorak, Laird WH, Mike, Ahmed Lee Kamsi, Alex Fedotov, Jerry Wilterding, Sean Foley, Flo, John Kozura, Jose Henrique, Rafael Wojcik, Patrick Dennis, Denier, Danny, Marcelo Barnaba, Mark Armstrong, Chris Hilly, Jason McCampbell, Weller Tractor Salvage, Adam Robinson, Chuck Dannon, Paul Lester, Valina Menenti, Gabriel Nader, Tim Hines, Stefan Petrangelo, Sam Terzakian, Jeff Renike, Tina Tallon, Rushin Shah, Inga Strumke, Alfredo Vimanko, Lockwood Carlson, Alan Parik, William Blair, Jason Rutrell, Dick Pills, Adrian Griffith, Hannah Khan, Andrew Jason, Mark Langston, Arnufal Zapetta, Tom Van Scotter, Michael Lewis, James Fitzwater, Dana Bridges, Kelly Kudrick, Richard Schwartz, Darren Redfern, Mark Bloor, Fraser Kane, James Page, Steve Shaber, Naked Bunny with a Whip, Rich Weigel, Bob Simone, James Nance, Tomas All, Glenn McDavid, David Taschioni, Radek Nesbida, Heather, Herbert Coe, Nathan Hanna, Brainwise, Ken Blackman, Benhead, and Tomas Walgren. Thanks everyone for tuning in, and we'll see you back here next time for more Starts With a Bang. Bang.